Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt, Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to johnji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at johnji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I like your check. It was like a circus noise. I was uh, singing to you. I was making beautiful music and you interrupted it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) All right. It's that time where we answer your questions about the natural world in the radio business. They call this a mailbag segment and we lovingly refer to ours as the outside inbox. Hey, Taylor Quimby. Hey, Nate Hedgie. So, spring can be an incredible season from a visual standpoint. Right. But this is a podcast, so what do you think are the iconic sounds of spring? For me, Northeast, I definitely think peepers. What are peepers? Peepers, like, cheep, cheep, cheep. Well, I'm done. I'm not doing it right. You know, spring peepers, the frogs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a small chorus frog, widespread through the eastern United States and Canada, yeah. On Google, I'm looking at one that's like the size of a finger. It's like literally sitting on a guy's finger. My sounds of spring are definitely birds up really, really early. I think of lawnmowers. It's like a a thing that dads start to do at like five in the morning when they hit a certain (laughs) age. Uh Uh-huh. Same with sprinklers going off. They get really excited about like, the sprinklers gotta go off before the sun rises. Yeah, there it is. What about sneezing? That's a classic sound of spring. Or just sounding like this, because your nose is (laughs) plugged up. Yep. I always make like a spring playlist where I'm running and it's got like, you know, 
funky songs and happy songs. And so it's not like you're looking for songs that have the word spring in the title. No. You're looking just for like upbeat. Yeah, I'm like over like the, the Bon Iver and like moody Sufjan Stevens time of the winter where it's like <laughs> pensive folk. Nick Drake, you're done. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> you're finished. <laughs> Cancel you, Nick Drake. So in celebration of spring, we asked you all for questions on the theme of growing. And Taylor, we got some interesting ones, didn't we? Yes, we did. And uh, speaking of peepers, the first one we're going to briefly tackle is amphibian related. Uh, So Louise Liller posted a photo on our Twitter account and asked, can you tell me what is happening here with these frogs? I mean, I have a suspicion, but it seems kind of extreme even for nature. Nate, can you describe this picture that she sent us? Yeah, it looks like it's out of a horror movie. Uh, there is a, <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a pool, a shallow, clear pool, uh, kind of surrounded by leaves and grass. And in the middle, it's what looks like some sort of, uh, uh, I would say, like four or five goblins <laughs> all huddling together in some sort of satanic prayer. Uh, okay, fair enough. If you zoom in, I, you can make out that these are several frogs. I can't what? say how many, but... I, They're frogs? Yeah, zoom in. Oh, I see their frogs now. I can see a little frog head right there. It's like a ball of frogs. What the heck is that? Why are they doing that? I wasn't able to identify the specific species of frogs pictured here, but I was able to confirm that some species are known for practicing various forms of polyamory. Oh. Sometimes a female has multiple male partners. In some cases, it's the opposite. Um, so so I think that's where maybe Louise was getting at. As what, what did she say? I have a suspicion, but it seems kind of extreme. Oh. Is she talking about a a frog orgy? (laughs) He says tentatively as the host of an outdoor podcast. Can I say that on public radio? You can, you can. So so it's a frog orgy. Yeah, exactly. Um, I can't exactly say what the details here are, but I just want to point out that group sex, um, it's not as extreme in the animal kingdom as one might be led to believe Hmm. by the uh, sensational but admittedly funny headlines on this subject. I read one that said, kinky frogs build secret underwater sex chambers. (laughs) (laughs) Those dirty frogs. Another that reads, the annual alpine frog orgy. I like kinky frogs. I, I should say, I've spoken to biologists uh, and writers who think that this kind of writing maybe does a mild disservice mm-hmm. to the science. Um, but frogs in particular are known to push the boundaries. So, for example, um, there was a study of Australian gray foam nest tree frogs that showed 90% of females mated with 10 or more partners at a time. This is called simultaneous polyandry. Wow. So, wait, is this like a form of competition, like a, uh, like a big, I don't know, like wrestling match where the frogs kind of they're fighting for the chance to to mate? No, no. And I think that's what makes this kind of special. This uh, brand of frog group sex is actually cooperative. Uh-huh. Um, so there's no real fighting. The female lays her eggs on a tree branch. The males kind of gather around and they fertilize them by releasing sperm and just sort of whipping them up into this foamy substance. The whole process is apparently very amicable. Uh, and according to the study, um, it makes for sturdier frog babies uh, than frogs that, that are monogamistic. Sturdier frog babies. That's, that's how scientists put it, right? Sturdier frog babies? <laughs> that is actually the name of the paper. No, it's not. Is it really? No, 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 no. <laughs> All right, so thank you, Louise. And listeners, if you have any pictures you want to share with us on our Twitter page, we're going to do our best to answer them. So what's next? All right, so this 
seems like a perfect time to transition to another forest foam-related question. This one answered by producer Justine Paradise earlier this spring. This is Mihaela, Mihaela LaRoche. I'm calling from northern New Hampshire. Every time it rains, there is a white foam forming at the base of the tall, big, white oak and pine trees on our property, and it disappears um, when the rain stops. Uh, What is that? Thank you. Huh. A white foam that forms on white oak and pine trees every time it rains. So to answer this question, I called up Rebecca Roy. This is such a great question, and I love it. What a wonderful observation. Rebecca manages educational programming for Vermont State Parks, and her background's in natural sciences, including, importantly for us, a stint teaching chemistry. Because to get right to the answer... What your listener is seeing is a a crude soap that's forming. A crude soap? Yeah. I didn't, I assumed that soap is just what I, you know, wash myself with in the, uh, in the shower. I didn't really think that, like, trees can make soap. Well, so it's what's happening on the trees. So if you were to make soap yourself at home, mm-hmm. you would learn that you essentially need four elements. So one, a fat or oil. Mm-hmm. Two, an alkali. So like a basic substance, like not an acid. So um, some salts, ash, for instance. Um huh can be mixed to make lye, water, and a mixing force. So all of these elements come together on Mihaila's trees in her yard. Yeah, but like how? So just ordinarily outside, there are tons of particles just floating around in the air. These particles include some of those ingredients of soap. Salts and acids um, and alkali substances in the air, in dust. When it's dry, these particles are floating around and sticking to surfaces all over the place. Surfaces like trees. And meanwhile, there are also oils in tree bark. Okay, so so we've got our first two elements, fat or oil, and the dust, which contains alkalis. And then you add your third element, which is water. When it rains, these salts and fats and acids and alkalis all dissolve and start flowing down the tree trunks, which then provides our fourth and final element... The water mixes with oxygen on the surfaces, especially on those larger trees, and it mixes up this crude soap. It's actually bonding chemically to create soap. If you think about, Nate, like what happens when you scrub a dish in the sink, a soapy dish? It it gets all foamy. It foams up. Yeah, and remember that Mihaila specifically mentioned white oaks and pines. And this tree soap phenomenon is not exclusive to those trees. And it's not even exclusive to trees, but it's just that you need a ton of surface area and something to turn it into foam for it to be observable by us. And think about the texture of those trees. Right, right. Like a pine or an oak might have rougher bark than, I don't know, like a a birch tree or something like that, right? Right, which means more suds. So it's a combination of the surface area. So they're really big trees with that really furrowed rough bark working together to make it something that we observe. So it might also happen in other places, like on a blade of grass or something, but it just wouldn't be observable to okay. us. Okay. Um, but there is another outdoor place with a lot of surface area and a lot of mixing where you might observe this. Uh, Nate, can you guess where? Hmm. <sighs> I keep thinking about like a parking lot. Is that a silly? Is that a silly answer? No, it's not silly. That's exactly it. You can also it really? see it on the roads. Yeah. <laughs> Car wheels are stirring up that mixture and making that foaming soap. 
Okay, question for you, Justine. Can you like actually use the soap? <laughs> this is silly. Can you use the soap? I asked her that. You did ask her? What did she say? You probably could. I, it's a really, like, it's very crude. Um, that would be a wonderful experiment to do. I would love to see if your listener is up for trying that out and then reporting back to us what they discover. That was Rebecca Roy and producer Justine Paradise. And because this is turning out to be a very visual episode, we'll definitely make sure to link to some pictures on the show post at outsideinradio.org. And if you do try and wash your hands with tree foam, uh, please take a picture of that. I am not encouraging you to do this, but I am super curious if it works. Me too. Okay, so what's next? Uh, Next up, we're going to hear from producer Jessica Hunt. She took on a question about backyard gardening. And this week's question comes from Kevin on Instagram, who asks, what is the best filling for a raised garden bed? Oh, that is a great question. I mean, I'm not a really good gardener, but I am trying to get better. And I do have a few raised beds, but I feel like we should probably explain what raised beds are first. Well, there are a few different types of raised beds, but I think most people, when they say raised beds, are thinking of plots that are enclosed in what looks like a sandbox. Right. You can get food out of less space. You can plant earlier because they drain water better than a plot in the ground. And they're also easier on the back, right? Like they're a little bit higher. Definitely. But maybe the biggest benefit is you can control what soil or what combination of soils you put in there. So to get some tips on what to fill those raised beds with, I reached out to Yolanda Burrell. She is the founder of Pollinate Farm, an urban farm in Oakland, California. And my answer... Pretty much all the time is it depends. Classic outside inbox answer. It depends on where you are. It depends on your budget. It depends on your climate. So people put a lot of different stuff in their raised beds, but I do know that the main ingredient is going to be soil. Yeah. If you're going to buy soil, get the best quality that you can. I prefer an organic label on it. Now, I should clarify, because this is confusing, all soil is organic in that it has organic material in it, but it can also be labeled organic, meaning there were not pesticides or anything used in it. Okay, so buy some soil, check. What should I be mixing it with? So there are lots of recipes online, but I don't think there's a perfect combination that we can recommend. I've seen things like 40% soil, 40% compost or organic matter, and 20% of something to help keep the filling loose and well-drained. That could be vermiculite, coconut fiber, or even just sand. It's like a baking recipe, but with dirt. I love it. Actually, dirt is something else, but we're not going to get into that. (laughs) Don't say dirt. It's not dirt. Okay, okay. Um, So for advanced level gardeners, is there a way to make your own filling versus buying it from the store? Definitely. Here's Yolanda. Get yourself a big wheelbarrow. Get some topsoil, local topsoil that hasn't come from like a construction site or a brown field or something like that. Then you need to add organic materials, like what's left from the fall raking that's broken down. It adds some nutrients. And you can then add your own amendments. You can add your own compost or your own steer manure, rock phosphate, rock dust, any kind of minerals that you want. Well, another thing you might want to think about if you're doing raised beds is the height. Okay, so if yeah, if you don't want to stoop over and kill your back, you might want it higher, which means more soil. Right. So let's say you want to do a two-foot deep bed. Mm-hmm. Not all plants need two feet or more of soil. 
Herbs and flowers need only about 6 to 12 inches of soil. Tomatoes have very shallow roots, but things like carrots or beets need that deep soil. So consider what depth you need for what you're planting, because you may be able to fill the bottom foot with twigs or other yard waste. Stuff that isn't soil, right? Right. And then put the soil on top of it. And you're basically composting in place. It's such a great idea. I mean, I never really thought about that. I've always filled the bottom of my raised beds with just rocks. And there's actually this really neat centuries-old traditional method of building raised beds where you layer the ground with old rotten logs, and then you add layers of rock and soil and compost, and it makes this kind of long-raised lump that feeds the soil nutrients. That's amazing. As the rotten logs decompose. It's called Hugelkultur, a German word for mound culture. Hugelkultur. I love that word. Hugelkultur. So, Nate, what is your favorite thing to grow? I would say kale. Kale is the easiest one to grow. I have had success with cucumbers. Uh, What about Yolanda? What is she like? Tomatoes. They're like puppies. I can't stop bringing them home. There's so many different shapes, sizes, colors. You know, the kitchen looks like a murder scene because there's just this like sauce everywhere. But it's it's so much fun. That was Yolanda Burrell and producer Jessica Hunt with an exciting new use for compost. Definitely want to start a hugelkultur of my own someday. It would be really fascinating to have one in your yard. I think people would ask you about it all the time. Like, what is that mound? It would be a conversation piece, for sure. Yeah. So it is time to take a break. But before we do, just want to remind folks that Outside In is a listener-supported podcast. We literally can't do segments like Outside Inbox without your questions, and we couldn't make anything at all without your financial support. So to be a part of the Outside In team, donate at outsideinradio.org or by following the link in the show notes. And send us an email with your questions anytime, day or night. We'll be right back. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie, here with producer Taylor Quimby, and we are answering your spring-related questions. And earlier this year, we got not one, but three questions about moss. And Taylor, you dug into these. What, What was the first one? So first, Carolyn from Instagram asked, does moss get damaged when you walk on it? So I reached out to a woman named Nat Clevett. She is a plant ecologist with Cornell University, but works primarily at the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest in New Hampshire. And I asked her if walking on moss does it damage. Short answer is yes. But, 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 but how much really depends on the details. How much walking? How much do the walkers weigh? Are they moving slow or are they like running? Are they barefoot? Are they wearing boots? This is a good sell for your, your Vibram Five Finger shoes. They're like, <laughs> you know, nice and they're, they're tight. They have less surface area. Better to walk on moss for. Very true. 
So, so Nat says that unlike grasses, which grow from the base of the blade and therefore are pretty protected, you can walk on grass and it, it generally is fine, moss has this three-dimensional growing structure that makes it a lot more vulnerable to squashing, especially if it is really dried out. So generally being wet is going to give you a lot more protection. It makes your cells more elastic, and it also fills in all the air spaces. Okay, but what about like snow and ice? I mean, if moss can be damaged by walking, how does it survive several feet of snowpack or ice in colder climates? Well, uh, Nat says that, you know, snow falls really gradually, so it's going to fill up the pockets inside the moss. Um, So there's just not the same level of compaction. And she also told me this wild fact that there are mosses that can photosynthesize two and a half meters under the ice in Antarctica. How does that happen? If you ever built yourself like an ice cave or an igloo, there's still light in there. It's not completely dark, right? And so, you know, these plants are evolved to use very low light levels. Oh, that's so sweet. I feel like there's a metaphor there. (laughs) Holding on for that little bit of hope. Yeah. There might be a glimmer of sun, a glimmer of light that you can hold on to and grow and become magical and mossy. So what are the other questions? Uh, So we got an email from a listener named Trisha. She wants to know, what makes the moss on trees seem to light up on rainy days? Is that a thing that happens in in New Hampshire all the time? Well, I thought it was just like it looks like maybe it's shinier, so it looks brighter. Yeah. But apparently this is not just Trisha's imagination. Rain really can make moss change color, become more green, really pop out. And it's because all that moisture is making them unfurl and fill up and sort of get bigger like wetting a dry sponge. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, so not like lighting up necessarily, but like becoming greener, becoming more vibrant when it when it rains. Yeah, they don't gl- they don't like glow. Oh, see, I missed <laughs> that. I thought <laughs> she was talking about glowing moss, but becoming more green. Absolutely, I've seen that. And this is great. Just get a spray bottle and go out in the summer when they're dry and spritz them, and it's just magic. Okay, last question. Trisha also wants to know, is moss on trees a good or bad sign for the tree or surrounding woods? Moss almost never does damage to trees. Uh, And really, it's usually just a sign that you're looking at older growth forests. But generally, that moss has a ton of ecosystem benefits. They're not just important for themselves. They're whole worlds. Like, there are so many organisms that depend on these miniature jungles. But they're not just good for forests, uh, sphagnum moss, bog ecosystems. They are perhaps pound for pound the most powerful carbon sinks on the planet. By area, uh, a mossy bog can hold twice as much carbon as a redwood forest. Wow. Um, Yeah. And in Scotland, you know, there are these huge areas where conservationists are actually fighting climate change by ironically cutting trees because they're trying to restore the bogs that were drained just a few decades ago. Huh. Because they're going to have more impact. So bogs, maybe not as as, uh, as classically beautiful as a redwood forest, but arguably really, really good for the environment. I think we should rebrand bog because I think bog has got a kind of negative feel. It's just one of those words that kind of just sounds sad. Just like, oh, bog. <laughs> I think we should call it a moss festival. I like moss festival. I, like, I think moss fest. Okay. Done. Done. Perfect. Thank you, Taylor, for teaching me not to walk on moss. Were you walking on moss before? Yeah, feels great. It does feel good on the toes. Growing up, going to my grandparents' house in Victoria, British Columbia, very rainy, moody area of the world. Their lawn Mm. wasn't actually a lawn. It was just moss, and it felt amazing to walk on. Ooh, I bet. I bet. My dad tried to have like a, a moss and lichen 
pathway. Yeah. But he basically was like, you can't walk on it. So nobody used the pathway. <laughs> so it's not a pathway then. It would just appear to be a pathway from a distance. But he's like, don't touch it. Don't you put your feet on that. <laughs> uh, so funny, not so funny story for you listeners out there. When I first spoke with Nat, the expert in this story, she misspoke and told me that moss can grow up to two kilometers under Antarctic ice. Mm-hmm. And Nate and I were both like, that is the most unbelievable thing I have ever learned in my life. It flew our minds. Oh, uh, but then after the piece aired, she sent me an email and was like, oh, by the way, I meant two meters, oh. not kilometers. And I was like, oh. Mm. So to those of you that heard that story go out on the radio, I am so sorry. I hope you have not spread this incorrect moss factoid any farther than I already did. I just want to point out, though, that two meters under the ice is also amazing. It's amazing if you didn't first hear two kilometers. <laughs> Let this be a lesson to you, Taylor. Yes, it was. It was. <laughs> I was humbled. <laughs> so we've reached our last question for the day, and producer Felix Poon answered this question with Justine Paradise on a very special day in January 2022. So we have the perfect question for today, January 21st. Because it's National Squirrel Appreciation Day. Justine, what do you appreciate about squirrels? Well, on the TV show Insecure, one of the characters points out that squirrels always look like they're late to work. <laughs> I appreciate that they're always, they always kind of look anxious, you know, <laughs> very yeah, busy. Yeah, they're always scurrying about. Always scurrying. So anyway, in honor of Squirrel Appreciation Day, let's listen to this squirrel-related question. Hello, Outsiding. Um, this summer I found a dead squirrel in my yard. I buried it in a shallow grave in a solemn ceremony. I'm wondering how long it'll take for it to decompose. Here are the conditions. I live in Montreal, Canada. My soil is poor but it's quite humid. I buried it about uh, six inches deep. I made him a Christian cross using chopsticks. Thank you. I mean, honestly, I love a decomposition question, but this is maybe kind of a ghoulish question to be answering on National Squirrel Appreciation Day. Yeah, you know, I thought about this and I figured squirrel death is just another part of squirrel life. True. So I spoke with Deborah Gody. She's a wildlife rehabilitator. And I asked her what some common causes of injury and death are for squirrels. I get a lot of hit by cars. They also get picked off by hawks and then sometimes they get dropped. Deborah treats injured squirrels by putting them on pain meds, giving them fluids, helping them eat if their face is sore. But obviously, they don't always survive. So has Deborah done any squirrel decomposition experiments herself? Unfortunately, no. She hasn't done that. Usually what she does with dead squirrels, uh, she calls it recycling. Basically, she feeds them to predators like turkey vultures, owls, and hawks that she's also rehabilitating. So then I talked to a decomposition expert. Her name is Sybil Buchelai. She's a researcher at a human decomposition anthropology facility, also known as a body farm. What we're doing is we're studying decomposition so that we can help um, law enforcement. So this is the sort of place that you see on like a Sherlock Holmes TV show where people study forensics, like determining time of death in a homicide or something? Yeah, and they study animals as well as humans. And Sybil says decomposition happens in two ways from the inside out. So inside out, your bacteria in your body starts to take over because there's no more immune system to stop that. And your body has digestive um, juices in the stomach. And so all of that starts to decompose the body from the inside out. And then... So I love that your podcast is Outside In. From the outside in, (laughs) a.k.a. 
being eaten by things like insects, vultures, possums, raccoons, even house cats. Very vicious creatures. Yeah. <laughs> but our our listener's squirrel was buried. Uh, Nicolas said about six inches, but would that have stopped outside-in decomposition? I mean, uh, six inches isn't very deep. Uh, other animals could have just dug it up. And even if they didn't, coffin flies probably did. Coffin flies. That's a species? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're like teeny tiny little flies. So, the, yeah, they would lay their eggs and then the larvae would hatch and they would feed on the squirrel. And then, of course, there's also worms and millipedes that could get at it. And they're also bringing bacteria to the table, too. It's beautiful. I mean, it's it's recycling. Recycling. <laughs> it's a circle of life. So what's the answer? How long does decomposition actually take? Yeah, Sybil said that it's really weather dependent. If it's warm, six inches deep, I'd give it two weeks. If it's cold, six inches deep, I'd give it nothing until spring. Our listener did say, though, that he found this squirrel in the summer. Yeah, so two weeks at most, one week if the soil is particularly rich in bacteria. All right, one to two weeks. There's your answer. Happy Squirrel Appreciation Day. Happy Squirrel Appreciation Day. (laughs) (laughs) Specialist day of the year, Squirrel Appreciation Day. (laughs) That was Felix Poon and Justine Paradise. And I don't want to give too much away, but this question wound up opening a big can of worms for Felix. So stay tuned because we're going to learn a lot more about decomposition in the next few weeks. That is truly a tantalizing cliffhanger for the end of this episode. And if you want to open a can of worms for the Outside In team, please send us your question via voicemail. Our email address is outsidein at nhpr.org. I'm going to I'm gonna like jazz up these um, credits with the sounds of spring. Outside In was reported and produced this week by Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, Felix Boone, and me, Nate Hedgie. It was mixed by Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, Felix Poon. I feel like I'm yelling over <laughs> yelling over lawnmowers and peepers right now. Editing by Taylor Quimby and Rebecca Lavoie. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. That last one was... Um... The first thunderstorm of the spring, which I forgot to mention. Oh, yeah. We don't really get thunderstorms out here in the spring. That's like an August sound. Feels like it's getting earlier and earlier every year. Why is that? I don't know what's happening. What's happening with the climate? I don't get it. Hmm.